What's your favorite way to learn? I like graphic novels because I can see who's talking. My grandma reads the newspaper to me. I like movies on TV. I play learning games on my dad's tablet. I like reading plain old regular books with lots of detail. This is Worlds Awaiting, helping children read, write, see, speak, think, and listen. Here's our host, Rachel Wadham. I'm Rachel Wadham, and welcome to Worlds Awaiting, helping children and parents explore the world of literacy. Today, we'll be exploring the worlds of book illustrations, read dogs, and theater. Our first guest is Beth Ann Anderson, an illustrator, and we'll talk about her process of illustrating books. Then we'll chat with Kathy Klotz about the Read Dogs program. Finally, we'll discuss the behind the scenes. Finally, we'll discuss the behind the scenes of theater production with Julia Ashworth, a theater education professor. Before we leave you, I'll step around the librarian's table with librarians from around Utah to talk about children, books, and life at the library. Along with our interviews, we'll have a poetry reading of the Jabberwocky and learn some writing tips from authors. But before all that, let's take a glimpse into my world. Rachel's Have you ever read a book that spoke to you? Have you ever read a book that changed your life for the better? Have you ever read a book with a character just like you? Have you ever gone through a difficult time and a book gave you the help or support you needed? Have you ever read a book that was so powerful that you just had to stay up all night to finish it? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you have found that elusive yet magical connection with the written word. My own connection came when I finished the last of Lloyd Alexander's The Pridane Chronicles as a 14-year-old. I remember that moment of loss when I finished the last word, knowing there would be no more. I also remember, however, the great sense of empowerment I felt in knowing that evil could be conquered and that even the most humble pig boy could make a difference. I faced many struggles as a child, and this sense of empowerment was just what I needed to make me stronger and to help me face the real world with a sense of my own ability to overcome negative situations. This experience is one of my defining moments that made me love books and reading. I am a lifelong reader now because of this and other defining experiences. Chances are good that if you are a reader, or if you know any readers, that they have had one of these kinds of defining experiences that made them into a reader. It really is these kinds of experiences that make readers— So as a library professional, I work to see that the individuals I interact with have the right environments surrounding them in order for them to have their own positive, defining reading experiences with books. Looking at this from a broader context, the lesson is that if we wish to create lifelong, passionate readers, then we must develop, teach, and engage in positive experiences with books. Each reader must find a book that he or she connects with. Anyone can be a reader, and those who are not readers just have not found the right book yet. So here at Rachel's World, we send out a call to all concerned adults to take some time to help the children in their lives find the right book so that they, too, can start on the path to becoming lifelong readers. Rachel's World 
The journey from an idea in an author's head to a published book can be a long one. There are lots of steps required from simply writing a first draft to multiple revisions. And when it's a picture book, artwork and character design are added into the mix on every single page. Every illustrator has their own unique process to creating their part of a picture book. Today, I have in the studio Beth Ann Anderson, an illustrator and professor at BYU, to share her process. Welcome, Beth Ann. Thank you. I am so excited to talk to you today. You are an illustrator and you've done picture books and quite a broad range of picture books. So let's talk a little bit just starting out about your process. What What is in general your process when you start approaching making a book? Um, usually what happens, the editor sends you a manuscript and it's not divided. It's just written like a report and you sit down and you know that if it's a picture book, there's usually 32 pages. And so what you do is you sit down and you start to divide the text where you see an image. And it's really interesting because they give you free reign. You can put all the words on two pages and have four pages of pictures or a little bit of words on every page. So it's kind of up to the illustrator how the book design goes in a way. Or that's been my experience. Well, I think that that's really interesting because I think a lot of people think that when you make a picture book that there's a lot more control that goes either to the author or the editor. But really that visual impact and how it flows is very much a part of what the illustrator does. So how do you get that flow? How do you feel that maybe these this page needs more words or this page needs more pictures? How does that create break down that creative process yeah. for us? Well, it's you, tricky, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, every book is different, but as you sit and read it and if you're visual Visually minded, you kind of see, oh, that's a great, oh, that would make a great picture there. And then I sit with a big tablet on my lap and very quiet in my living room or something when everybody's gone. And I read the manuscript and I just make thumbnails of, oh, this would be fun here or this would be fun here. And then from there, you make what they call a dummy book. And that's a bad name. <laughs> it's <laughs> by the way, but that's what everybody uh, uses. But basically, then you do kind of larger, loose sketches. And you run it by the editor or even a little more finished sometimes. And then they make comments. And um, the last book I did was really interesting because the art director put sticky notes on, the editor put sticky notes, and the marketing put sticky notes. Interesting. So you get um, – but it's it's really interesting. They usually don't comment on the art. It's maybe place this here or maybe research the type of hats or – you know, they're little kind of comments on the side, not really – changing the flow of the book or something, which I found interesting. That is fascinating. How do you kind of pick the style? I think a style would have a lot to do with it, too. Like when you say, you know, the period of hats or something like that. Right. How, how do you kind of stylistically match the text? Do you know, this is really selfish. I kind of want to do what I want to do. <laughs> I would love to say, you know, um, but I kind of get an idea. And then 
I personally love to look at old paintings and get ideas from different eras. Now, if it's a era specific, then I look at that era. Um, I've talked to people after the fact that research is key, you know, and where I'm interested in the art side and if it just looks good, but then there'll be teachers. No, this kind of button wasn't used in that time period. So you have to, there's a fine balance of, you know, keeping it within the time period, but having a little artistic freedom too. So how do you achieve that balance? I mean, that must be really tricky. And I know authors in the text have that same problem where, you know, how do you make it so it's something that's understandable by a modern audience or addresses the needs, but then at the same time has that kind of historical yeah, balance. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, I I just look at visuals and um, I look at what's going on in the period and then I try to kind of get that feel. Um, Giorgio O'Keefe gave a great um, quote and if I'm paraphrasing a little, but while they were photographing her paintings, they were wondering if the color was right. And she goes, well, I don't care so much if the color's right, if it feels right, Mm. you know. And I think maybe there's the key. If it just feels right, you'll you'll never be dead on, you know, on some things. So if it kind of feels good to you, I think. <laughs> no, that's that's a great answer because I really think there is that sense of just, you yeah. know, how does it feel and how does it holistically? I mean, I will ask a very impolite question now. Sure, go ahead. Um, have you ever made a mistake that oh, yeah. somebody has oh, pointed out to you and said, oh, no, I <laughs> you know, know. that hat um, is totally wrong? You know, interestingly enough, no, which is <laughs> Well, good. That See, amazing? that shows how well you're good. No, I, well, and then I'll, oh, for example, I did a pioneer and I, um, piece once and I researched and the scarves that they would bring on the planes were usually paisley scarves from England Mm. and I made paisley and they said really does pioneers really have paisley yeah let me tell you (laughs) that's what they would bring anyway so you can almost have the opposite so you research and then they go what the heck is that (laughs) so it kind of works both ways i guess that that's fascinating i think that there's there's that sense of you know how how do we experience history and i think a great majority of the books that you do are historical in nature why why are you kind of drawn to that kind of theme or that kind of genre i i wish um i could say i'm drawn to that it's usually been the work that i've gotten and um I remember the first book that I got, they handed it to me in a publishing house, and it was uh, Susan Hirschman of Green Willow Books and Ava, the art director, and incredible women. I didn't know at the time it was kind of a cold call. And they handed me a manuscript, and they said, we're just going to leave you in the room for a minute to read this and let us know how you feel about it. And I was so nervous I didn't read it. And they came back. How did you feel about it? Wonderful. Oh, I love it. (laughs) (laughs) That's a lovely story. I will take that. (laughs) And then uh, actually, uh, just to finish uh, this, I'm – 
I really was so nervous I couldn't read it. And when I got home and read it, I was so moved by the story. So, you know, it's, it's fun, but I just do kind of what at the time, what was assigned to me. That's that's <laughs> really fun. And I, I really do think, though, that your style, which is more of a, a classic artistic style, I don't know if that's the best way to characterize it. I mean, you, you have more of a realistic style. It's not very cartoony or anything. Yeah. I think your style fits really well with this kind oh, of well, historical period. Um, I've noticed, and I love them, I notice kind of the thing that's going on right now in books very simplistic. And they're gorgeous. Don't get me wrong. I love Where's My Hat and Olivia. Yeah. I mean, those are so charming and wonderful. I I, I love the old English illustrators, the Arthur Rackhams and, you know, yeah. all those. So the I Kate kind of, Greenaways. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Isn't she <laughs> yes. incredible? Oh, yes. If, if our listeners out there have not seen some Kate Greenaway, just yeah. – Beautiful I, Victorian, right? Gorgeous watercolors. I believe right. I'm not certain. Yeah. Well, interestingly, she um, started out doing um, some Valentine uh, cards, and her cards outsold everyone, and so they got her into books. <laughs> So I thought that was incredible. That's a, that's a wonderful way connection. Okay. Way, to, way to go. Put, the, put that connection, that yeah, connection that's there. Right. That's, that is just – so once you get – you know, once you get that first break and that you, yeah. you actually read the manuscript <laughs> yeah, after that and, you know, or you went from yeah. reading cards into illustrations – what is the process kind of after you've finished the illustrations? So once you've actually finished the the paintings or the drawings right. and they take them to the kind of the end book production, right. what is your role in that? I, I honestly don't have a role pretty much after that. They do the graphic design, the setting of the type. Now, I've heard of a lot of illustrators – uh, dictating where they put the type and things. I usually leave a blank space and then they can fill in the type. Um, the thing that happens after that, it's really important to have a good art director because they oversee color separation. And it's really interesting. It, we're living in a time of incredible color printing. And it's harder sometimes than you think. And... Um, Anyway, it kind of leaves your hands. Uh, you'll get a couple back. Oh, could you move this leaf? It's covering the words. Or can you adjust a little? But not much, which is amazing, you know. Um, Maybe I've just had a wonderful experience, you know. I haven't I love have loved absolutely loved the people I've worked with and I've had very little you know, bad experience. Well, that's good. Yeah, I, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's rare, right? <laughs> so there's, there's sometimes that way. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Beth Ann. I appreciate thank you, it. Thank you, Rachel. Beth Ann Anderson is a published illustrator and professor at BYU. Now we have story time with a reading of Lewis Carroll's poem, The Jabberwocky. T'was brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wabe. All mimsy were the borer groves and the mome rats outgrabe. Beware the jabberwock, my son, the jaws that bite, the claws that catch. Beware the jubjub bird and shun the frumious bandersnatch. 
he took his vorpal sword in hand, long time the maxome foe he sought, then rested he by the tum-tum tree, and stood a while in thought. And while in uffish thought he stood, the jabberwock with eyes of flame came whiffling through the tall wood and burbled as it came. One, two, one, two, and through and through the vorpal blade went snicker-snack. He left it dead, and with its head he came galumping back. And hast thou slain the Jabberwock? Oh, come to my arms, my beamish boy, O oh, frabscious day, Kaloo, Kalay! He chortled in his joy. T'was brillig, and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the groves, and the momrats outgrave. People say that a dog is man's best friend. But for many children, dogs have become so much more than that. In fact, dogs all over are helping children develop critical literacy skills. Today, I have in the studio Kathy Klotz, the executive director of the Read Dogs program. Welcome, Kathy. Thanks. I'm pleased to be here. Well, thank you. Why don't you tell us to get started, just a little bit about what Read Dogs is, since I know, but our audience doesn't. Tell us a little bit more about what is this program called Read Dogs. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, reading Education Assistance Dogs is the, the long, the mouthful. Um, it's a program that we launched at the Salt Lake City Library in 1999 um, on the premise that all the benefits we saw with therapy animals across other kinds of settings, whether it was hospital rehab or um, seniors or where, wherever we might be, would those same benefits accrue to children in a reading environment? And it was one of those ideas that our board member, Sandy Martin, who was a nurse at University Hospital and um, had seen the benefits of animals, and she she called me late one night and said, okay, don't laugh, but do you think? And once once the idea was there, it was like so obvious, you know, why hadn't somebody thought about it much sooner? Well, somebody had thought about it. Um, there are ancient pictures of people reading to their dogs. Um, a lot of kids do it automatically. Um, some people would kind of blush and say, I used to take my dog into the closet and read so nobody would see me do it. Um, but we were the first to come up with a model to utilize therapy animals to be able to help kids improve their reading and communication skills and really their whole lives emotionally and, and uh, beyond beyond fluency and comprehension and just reading skills. So um, we talked the Salt Lake Library folks into launching a four-week pilot program, and they um, sort of reluctantly accepted on the idea that it was um, something that had never been done anywhere before. And uh, they were so thrilled with the results that before that four-week pilot was over, they managed to get us an article on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Wow. So uh, we really, we it was like a tiger by the tail, and we feel like we've been trying to catch up ever since then. But so that was November of 99, and in January we started with our first elementary school program. Um, and libraries are fabulous. It gives kids a a chance to be with an animal that they don't often get. Um, 
get the physiological benefits of being with an animal. And school programs are really where the power is seen um, when the dogs return. And a, a child can read as little as 20 minutes a week to an animal and make just incredible progress in reading skills. Um, in that first pilot, um, the 12 children who participated all raised their reading levels between two and four grade levels within one school year. Amazing. Incredible gains. But beyond that, other things happened. They gained confidence. They started to volunteer in class. They uh, checked books out of the library, which none of them had ever done. They felt special because they got to participate in the program. They um, joined the chess club and other 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 school activities. They started to mentor other kids. So really, the benefits went way beyond what we had even initially imagined. Tell us a little bit about how it works. So the dogs go into a school or library, and then what what happens in that context? Well, the hallmark of of our program, um, there have been knockoffs all over the all over the world, but. Um, what we insist on in our program is that the handlers be trained to offer positive and useful support through their animal. And I can give you some illustrations of how that works. But um, if a child is struggling with reading, uh, there are some other people who do this without n- any human intervention. They say it's just kids get criticized too much. It's enough for them to just listen to, to get to read to a dog. But if they've got a bad pattern established, that keeps it going. Or if they get stuck and frustrated, really the dog can't help them at that point. So we use all these methods of speaking through the animal to make it work. Um, uh <laughs> Do you want an yeah, example explain, right explain, now? Explain that a little more. How how do you train the humans? I I guess that's a great thing. How do you train the humans to make this interaction more deep than just reading yes. to the dog? Well, we have a at this point we've developed a more than 200 page training manual that's gotten a lot of accolades from educators. So it's all legitimate uh, learning material. But what we ask of a volunteer is that they become as engaged and skilled as a good parent might. They don't need to become a professional teacher or literacy mentor. Um, so an example of how they speak through the dog, um, they'll, if a child is stuck on a word or, or doesn't pronounce it correctly, that's like, oh, wait a second, Foster, he's not sure what that, what is that word? Can you Can you tell him what it means? And if they can't, you look it up together and then have the child explain to the dog what it means. And then um, how, well, how does that work in the story? What does that mean in the story? So um, you stop to discuss communication skills at the same time that you work on on words. But um, one of our favorite little stories on that um, was a young boy. Uh, he was a fourth grader, actually, who... Um, was reading to a dog whose owner had trained him to sneeze on command. (laughs) We don't know why, but um, anything a dog can do can contribute to this. So um, he's reading along in this picture book, and he says, and the ladies all had bananas in their hair. And so she said, oh, wait a second. She gave the signal, and Biscuit sneezed, the dog. And she said, Biscuit's going, how come all those ladies had bananas in their hair? And he kind of frowned, and he looked back at the page again, and he said, 
Oh, Biscuit, I'm sorry. The ladies had bandanas in their hair. And so and then he turns to the handler and he says, boy, he really knows his stuff, doesn't he? <laughs> so there's, it's not really a disconnect. They know they're not teaching the dog to read, certainly, but they are positively convinced he's listening to the story and understanding. It's just amazing. Um, we started getting pictures from people doing this all over the country where the children were turning the books so that the dogs could see the pictures. And they do that without fail. Um, always turn so the dogs can see the pictures and understand what's going on. That is an amazingly <laughs> wonderful story. <laughs> I, I think it really shows about that. And it's an emotional connection, too. Yeah. And, uh, speak a little bit more about that, about why this really goes beyond that kind of sense of learning to read or this literacy sense into more of this emotional connection that that helps release something in the children. Well, there are a lot of ways that works. Um, for one, a lot of the kids we work with may not necessarily have an intellectual limitation or a reason that they can't learn to read. A lot of them, it's because they have emotional upheaval of one kind or another at home, and that's paralyzing their ability to learn, um, as does fear. Um, you know, most adults, when they read out loud, really aren't even comprehending because they're so nervous about what everyone else is thinking. Um, there's a quote we really love, that fear can destroy intelligence, and it really does. Your mind just blanks out on everything you know you know sometimes when you get called on. So they will say things to the dog like, um, I stutter a bit and he never laughs at me. Or um, my mom's always telling me to hurry up and my dog never does that. Or if I make a mistake, I know he's not going to go tell my friends that I'm dumb. Um, so all those little fears and worries that hamper children in their learning um, are well served by a dog who they in, intrinsically know does not judge them or laugh at them or make them feel inadequate in any way. Plus they become the tutor. They're actually... Um, it's an enhancing thing for them to, instead of feeling like the, you know, the class dummy, as quote, or inadequate, they are teaching the dog things. So it changes everything. Yeah, well, and that's an interesting kind of switch because I know you tend to learn more when you teach it. Yes. So I think that that kind of context where we're teaching it to the dog also changes something fundamentally mm -hmm. in their brain as well that says, this isn't just me doing it. I'm teaching somebody else to do that. That structures it really, really well. Well, I know people might be interested in about how do they get involved in a program like this? I know ours is local here, but um, there's similar programs throughout the United States. So how might somebody get involved or maybe even start a program like mm -hmm. this in their own community? Well, in fact, um, our READ program has officially registered more than 5,000 other therapy teams in all 50 of the United States and 15 other countries at this Wonderful. point to do our version of the program. So um, they can go to our website, which is therapyanimals.org, and there's a big tab for the READ program, which tells all about it, um, has lots of quotes from parents and kids and educators and libraries librarians and people that have made use of the program. And the first thing they would have to do, of course, is to qualify as a, a registered, tested, liability-insured team with their animal um, uh, 
and again, we've talked about this earlier, but not everybody who wants to do this has a dog who wants to do the job. And in order for everybody to benefit, the dog has to want the job too. So that's the first thing to think about. Is, Making sure the dog wants the job. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and once you've determined that and become a therapy team in your area, you can participate officially in our READ program or in many others that are exist around around the country and the world. That's amazing. Are there particular breeds or types of dogs that make better uh, READ dogs particularly? Well, um, Labs and retrievers tend to be great therapy animals. In general, many of them have the kind of temperament that we're looking for. But really, we've had everything from 200-pound mastiffs to 2-pound Yorkies who have <laughs> been therapy animals. And the and often it's a job for an older dog who, you know, a year-old lab who it's too energetic to maybe lie still for 45 minutes while someone's reading to him. My dog, at the end of his life, there was nothing he thought better than to put his head in the child's laugh and lap and get to recline while he listened to stories. So um, calm, energetic, only in, you know, calm doses. Um, that's kind of it. It's, it sounds simple, but there's a lot behind that. Yeah. And so there's a, essentially, you're saying, a great amount of training and certification that would mm-hmm. go into this. So can you briefly describe just some of that training and certification? For a therapy animal in yeah. general? Yeah. Um, they have to be able to, uh, beyond temperament, they have to have a lot of skills that are evident in a dog that's going to be welcome anywhere. They have to uh, not be dragging their owners down the hall, and they have to be responsive. There has to be a good relationship between the the person and the animal. They have to do sit, down, stay, come. Um, they have to be willing to engage with new people on a regular basis. Um, and then for the read program, um, beyond that, we have a, our a, our our extensive manual, and uh, we do have a home study program and a video. Uh, we have a network of ninety some instructors throughout the United States to they can attend workshops to learn the program as well. Uh, That's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I hope that more people will be interested in this amazing program and figure out how to get involved themselves. Thanks so much, Kathy, for your time today. Thank you. Kathy Klotz is the executive director of the Read Dogs program. Now we have the chance to listen to a few writing tips from authors Kristen Crow, Lauren Tarshish, and Charlie Glenn. My tip is if you want to be a writer, you have to read You have to read a lot of books so that you know how books work and so that you know how stories work. And that comes with lots of reading. So find books that you love, be on the hunt for new books that excite you and interest you, and just read, read, read. I would say that to write your first, don't worry about writing your first, what I call my first bad book. You know, I don't believe that writing is a talent. I think it's a skill just like anyone who plays basketball or builds Legos. It's, it's a skill that you get better at. Um, and I think you can also turn your favorite authors into your teachers without even meeting them by reading, reading. And if you love a chapter, read it again and really think about, you know, what was it? What, you know, what was about those sentences that really gripped you? So those are my two tips. Turn your favorite writers into your teachers and don't be afraid to write your first bad book. Because I certainly do. I, you know, I, I wrote a couple of really bad books <laughs> and I'm proud of them. So I think there are three things 
that anyone who wants to be a writer needs to do. You need to read a lot, you need to write a lot, and you need to pay attention. You need to live your life and pay attention, and then really it's not that different than learning to play the piano. I mean, you've got to practice, right? And um, and your best teacher is going to be better better than going to any kind of a special program, you know, a creative writing program, just reading the kinds of books that you want to write. Just read lots and lots of them. If you want to write picture books, I tell people, before you even put pen to paper, read a hundred, minimum, a hundred picture books. At least half of those need to have been published in the last five years. So read a lot, write a lot, and pay attention. Perfect advice. Thank you. Attending a live theater performance can be a thrilling experience for adults and children. However, there's a lot of preparation that occurs behind the scenes to make sure that that magic happens. Today, I have in studio Julia Ashworth, a professor of theater education who creates fantastic theater for children. Welcome, Julia. Well, thank you. I'm super excited to be here. So let's start. Point one, you're going to put on a play for young audiences. Where do you start? What, what's the first step? Step one. Step one is usually several years out from opening night. So you don't, you, you're not going to do it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> opening night is like three years from now. <laughs> it's usually several years out because yeah. step one in my process is finding a script that really resonates with yeah. me. Something I feel passionate about because I'm going to be spending endless hours, <laughs> as are my students, the designers and the actors and all the other students involved working on this show. So I might as well have passion that I can try to infect yeah. other people with. Um, and then it's a matter of, so with the young company, our touring shows, everything's got to fit in a van. We, Even more complicated. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. We do shows for young audiences um, on campus that don't tour. And those can those are often even more complicated yeah. and longer yeah. and maybe more sophisticated, maybe mature, more mature themes yeah. um, for old, like older young audiences, yeah. as I talked about before. Um, but everything's got to fit in a van. So that is like what almost all of our conversations rotate around. <laughs> it's like, how can we fit this in this small space? <laughs> right. Because... Uh, Somewhere between six to 12 months before we open, we start having production meetings. And in those production meetings, um, the student stage manager runs that meeting. Um, and the student designers are, you know, attend that meeting. And, uh, and the director is usually the one who's sharing his or her vision and driving the, the direction of those meetings. But the, the majority of the focus when it comes to designs, because we're talking about everything from set to lighting to sound design to costume design to hair and makeup. All those conversations are always contextualized around this idea. Okay, but it's got to go in the van. And the students need to be able to get ready and leave at 6 a.m. on those tour dates. They need to be able to do their hair and their makeup that fast. Um, And all the student bodies need to fit in the van. The, The most we've ever cast... This is pushing it. Was nine actors. Um, our our coming our 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 show coming up in the fall only has five actors, and it feels like we have all this breathing space and space to you put have other extra, things you in have the extra van. Room. 
<laughs> right. Uh, we used to haul around a trailer, but there were some serious complications with that. Yeah. And so even more complicated sets. Uh, yeah. But we don't do that anymore. So all needs to fit in a 12-passenger, maybe a 15-passenger van. That's not too big. It's still it's still a small space. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Right. So it requires the student designers who are often first-time designers on a young company show because in in some ways, resources-wise, because it's a smaller show, that's where student designers yeah. would begin. Well, and that's a nice opportunity for them to learn and grow and develop these right. kinds of skills. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. But then on the other hand, and as well as the stage manager, the student stage manager, a 19 or 20-year-old student will run that whole tour. I don't go on tour with them. Yeah. I go out a few a handful of times yeah. and I meet them, but I don't go in the van with them. Yeah. That student runs the tour. What a great experience, not only for the kids that are watching the play, but also for the ones that are involved in it. I think that that is a great opportunity for these students to learn all of these skills, you know, yeah. organization, yes. time management, you know. So this this isn't just about putting on a great play. This is about teaching these kids a lot of these other life skills too, which which absolutely. is a great reason for for students to participate in drama, right? Because I yes. think oh, absolutely. yeah, I think that that's, that's an interesting connection that we can make right. with this is this sense of it's not it's more complicated when we see a play. It's a lot more complicated yes. than we thought, and a lot went into making that. Absolutely, I used to be a high school drama teacher, and I I'm, a lot of my students are going to be future high school drama teachers, and we we talk about that a lot. Those life lessons, the majority of your students are not going to become professional theater makers. A few will, and that can be super cool and exciting, right? But the majority of them will not be. And so those life lessons are the everlasting transferable skills that we can offer that come anywhere from communication skills to collaboration skills to creativity. And, And it's so expansive. And this is one of the reasons why... Theater educators are so passionate about it because, yes, I love the theater arts. I love a good professional theater production. I go to New York and London as much as possible. London has the best theater on the planet. It does. Okay, the I'm, to- planet. I'm totally glad you said that. Well, we'll have a little gushing session here for a moment because I much prefer theater in London than to yes. New York. Oh, it's incomparable. It is <laughs> yes. incomparable. Yes. And yes. I used to live in New York, so I, I you know, feel a little bit like a, a betraying New my New York does some great heart. stuff. No offense, New York, but <laughs> but and but I love so I love all that, but educational theater I'm equally as passionate about because of the effect it has on young people's lives. Yeah. And, you know, I love the sense of how complicated this is because I think particularly I love to talk about the process that goes into this creation because I think some people will see a finished book or a finished play and think, oh, that was easy, but not realize all of this backstory that goes into creating it. And I love this sense about all of these meetings that happen way, way in advance of, of all of this. So as these meetings happen and you get closer to kind of like casting the play what how does things change as you move forward with that that's a really great question um depending on how early you start those meetings that is one of the reasons why you can't start those meetings too early yeah there are other meetings that start um that are mostly just involved with faculty and staff um that are involved with theater production and those can start even a year or two earlier than that um frankly but without the cast you don't want to go too far yeah Especially when it comes to costume, hair, and makeup, yeah, yeah. right? There's no yeah, bodies yeah. to fill those yet. Yeah. 
But even more complicated is a lot of times, so we'll get that cast as early as we can, but we won't, I haven't even started rehearsing for the show that I've been in production meetings for. Rehearsals will start in September. So a, a best, best case scenario from the day that rehearsals start, work backwards, how many years in advance do you start for best case scenario? You best start- case scenario. So the shortest. Yeah. How 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 long does it take you to get to first day of So rehearsals? I'm not adapting or translating no. a play because yeah. when I've done that yeah. before, that so, takes so a long So you have time. a play, you have a script, yeah. and then you you have first day of rehearsals. What is that time? Give us a sense of what that I time period I would say a like. year to a year and a half, be, in part because of the university calendar. Yeah. We have yeah. to get things scheduled. Yeah. yeah. And there needs to be a title. That's amazing to me that a whole year in advance is when you have to start this. Yeah. You know, rehearsals don't start till a year later. Right. But it takes all that process to right. get to get to that, to get to day one of rehearsals. So what does day one of rehearsals look like? What, oh. what, how does that? Day one does, of rehearsals is so much fun. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Everyone's nervous. Um, people are really worried about, uh, actors especially worried about a variety of things, as you can imagine. But what I love, especially since I love this educational theater approach to my work is I love taking the opportunity on day one to build community and and there's nothing better than that and so we build that foundation there's high expectations I have very high expectations of the people in that space but it's also a very inclusive welcoming space well and by the time you get done having acted and plays many times in my life it becomes a family yeah and you become that so starting that community is is a good thing so talk a little bit one of the things i love to talk about too is in these processes the kind of mistakes and pitfalls or or things that don't always go right because it doesn't it's not perfect from day one so what are those some of those challenges particularly as you start rehearsals and you start working um on on the actual production what are some of the things that go wrong what are some of the things you have to problem solve and fix well the whole thing is problem solving that is what rehearsal is is the problem trying to solve the problem of taking something on the paper and putting it in time and space. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. So the whole thing is problem solving. And so we, we like to approach it that way. So the idea of problem solving is the, the it is the job. It yeah. is the work. It's not a yeah. negative thing. Oh, yeah. another problem I have to solve. Yeah. That is the job. Right. Yeah. And particularly use you as director. Right. That would be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, I think some of the pitfalls or challenges is maybe a better word, um, that I regularly see directing at the university level is getting student actors comfortable enough to take the risks they need to to be vulnerable to the space that the audience really is craving. Yeah. It's really scary, frankly. Oh, yeah. You're putting a lot out there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then also the innovative portion for young audiences a lot of that physical storytelling that really isn't on the page at all that you have to create collaboratively, that can take a lot of time. But if you take those steps one at a time, it's just amazing the space we can get to. And everyone in the room knows it. Yeah. And I, I have a very democratic space. I'm interested in everyone's opinions. But people also can't be precious about their opinions yeah. because something might just need to go out the window. Yeah. I mean, we're going to jump way ahead, be, speed through this process. But we talked about some of those pitfalls and the problem solving, which I love, but let's say, you know, you, you've put on the show and it's being acted towards wonderful audiences. What are some of the joys? Explain maybe 
a, a situation where a student has given feedback on one of your shows and and what what is that joy when it comes to this end that you're finally in production and you're you're taking this show out right what what is the joy and the feedback that you get from your audiences uh, there's a lot of it there's a lot of it but one just popped into mind though um so a year and a half ago i directed a translated version of Romeo and Juliet for Young Company. We called it Romeo y Julieta because Julieta's family was bilingual in Spanish and English and Romeo's family was a monolingual English-speaking, Shakespeare-speaking family. Shakespeare-speaking family. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And we did all that work ourselves. We couldn't find a script, so we did it ourselves. Uh, And it was an enormous amount of work and we didn't really know exactly what we were getting ourselves into. So it was... More exhausting than usual. Yeah. We already talked about how, how it's exhausting all, how, it is. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Kind of twice as exhausting yeah. as usual. And that first tour date when my students were out in their first public school, they were just down the street here at Provost Elementary School, which has a very nice, diverse mix of yeah. students. Yeah. A lot of um, a lot of Hispanic students in yeah, that school. Yes, so a lot of yeah. primary Spanish-speaking yeah. students there. And our play starts off with this beautiful line of Spanish and the character who plays Tybalt or Teobaldo in our play, he spoke this line and the, all those Spanish speaking students in the audience literally gasped. Ah! And this shivers. This, yes, this take in of air, like the feeling that brought into the yeah. space. Just even now I get chills just thinking about yeah. it because that was our intention. We have so many schools that yeah. we tour to yeah. with so many um, bilingual students. And we would see students turn to their friends and say, because we didn't, we're not translating yeah. for you. Yeah. They, they, they were the ones translate. finally explaining to it. their friend. And it was just, it was beautiful. It was beautiful oh, to see that. This is so amazing. Thank you for breaking down this process for us to help us kind of envision what the possibilities are and to see how complicated it really is when yeah. we see those plays. And maybe, you know, next time you take your child to a play have this chat and say a lot of work went into, into yes. doing this yes so you, so you know that all all this background comes into these marvelous productions thank you so much thank you i've loved this julia ashworth is a theater education professor at byu now join me around the librarian's table as i talk with librarians from around utah about children books and life at the library I'm in the studio with Fiong Yu and Petrina Garza, Salt Lake librarians. We are also joined by Heather Novotny, a school librarian from the McGillis School. I am so excited to have you today, and I am it really excited to kind of delve into your experience. So one of the things that I think personally is really important, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, particularly for kids, and when it comes to kids' books, is having books that represent experiences that might not be what a child has. So this might be a different race experience, a different culture experience, or just a different life experience, maybe um, about mental illness, or about homelessness, or poverty, or maybe about having a family member who is in the military or or something like that that might not be in their normal sphere of experience, but other children might have experienced. So how do we use these books? Why are they important? let's Let's just figure that out. So why these books and why are they important? I'll go. Okay, so I think for kids of all ages, you know, being able to um, 
interact or have a friend that has maybe a differing ability or who maybe is experiencing homelessness or has a family member who has some sort of um, physical difference. Like it's so important for kids to to recognize that even though someone might be different, that they can still like find some sort of common ground and being able again to see past like those what we may call as perceived differences, but literature can help us do that with learning about, you know, whether it's fictional or about a real person, like a biography, it's just really good for kids to have that opportunity to learn about someone else who is different from them so they can find that commonality. I really like the way you said that. Another thing that I often think about is that Quite often, when you have a really great book, there'll be a it'll, there'll be a lot of complexity there, and there usually will just be at least one piece where any kid that any kid to, could relate with. I'm thinking about a teen book I read pretty recently called um, Darius the Great is Not Okay, and this is a book about a, um, a kid who lives in Portland, and his dad is white American, and his mom is Iranian, and so he he describes himself as like a fractional Persian like half Iranian, half mm-hmm. American. and um, But there's also a lot of other things going on in, into his, in his life. He struggles a little bit with his weight, and that's mainly because he um, he's on medication for depression. And he um, goes to visit his family in Iran and, for the first time, his, his uh, mother's family. And um, I think anybody who has struggled with depression or who feels like an outsider or who um, – who is going on a trip to visit relatives who live across the country or across the world could identify with someone on that journey. And I'm not Persian, but I do have um, quirky relatives that I go visit occasionally. And that kind of resonated with me. And I'm a Star Trek fan, and so is he, and so I saw that piece. And I think that a really great book can make you see the things in the characters that uh, are – are like you and are unlike you. So when we talk about mirrors books and windows books um, and how mirrors books are books that let us see ourselves and we feel validated and they um, they show us our life back to us and windows books open out into the wider world and they show us the lives of others. I think all the great books are both um, at the same time to us. So. And I just want to add that it's really important for kids to recognize that there are some things that are visible and some things that are less visible. So like a mental health issue like um, or having um, autism, for example. I'm thinking of a boy called Bat where the main character has autism. And it's not always evident from the onset, but... You know, as you start to read more about this character and learn about this character, you start to realize that there are a lot of different things that make us who we are. And it's important for kids to realize that. So how do you use these books as librarians? I mean, you have such a great knowledge of them. How do you engage kids with them? And and how do you see kids responding to them? Sometimes I just think about theme, about what the book's about. So when I'm thinking about a really great book like Imagine by the former the former poet laureate Juan Felipe Herrera, and he talks about moving to the United States and um, and then you know learning to write and then becoming poet laureate and his his immigrant journey. And that might not be a story that resonates with all kids, but all kids who see it can understand that it's 
uh, it's really brave when for the first time you stand in front of the class and and sing for the first time. When you stand outside a doorway and go into a new classroom and not knowing anyone, you feel that empathy. And even uh, even if the experience that you had is not the same, you would still see you would still feel that common sense of of experience with the with the protagonist. Plus, um, it's just a delightful book. I mean, one of you brought in dreamers. I do have dreamers. Yes. One of my favorites. Yeah. Talk about that one. Well, this is Dreamers by Yui Morales. And this was my, uh, you know how you make your secret um, Caldecott bet. This is the one I had my fingers crossed because it's so lovely. And it's ju- it's a book about a single mom and her son coming to the United States. And they wander all around the world, uh, th- their new land, and they see things that they have never seen before. And they make mistakes and make amends for them. And then they come in the middle of the book to this wondrous place that they have never seen before. And it's the library. So this would be a really great gift for anyone who's just graduating from library school because it shows the power of – our institution that we love so much to bring us together. But it's a sweet story about a, about a mom and her son. Yeah. Fundamentally, that's what it is. A story about a mom and a son. I love it. Thank you, ladies. This, this has been great. I love hearing all of your great recommendations and hopefully this will get us out of our reading ruts and help (laughs) us kind of look for books that might be a little outside of our experience. I think sometimes that's challenging, particularly for us as parents and concerned adults or even as readers. So let's go out there and and find some interesting new books that extend our worldview. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks. I'd like to thank Petrina, Fiong, and Heather for joining me around the librarian's table. We've had a great show today. We talked with Beth Ann Anderson about her illustration process. Then we chatted with Kathy Klotz about the Read Dogs program. And in our last interview, Julia Ashworth led us through the process of putting together a theater production. If you missed any of today's show, or if you want to listen to it again, you can find it on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org, as well as on most podcast apps and websites. If you want to know more about what we do here at Worlds Awaiting, feel free to follow our Instagram at Worlds Awaiting. This has been a production of BYU Radio. Our producer is Cole Wissinger, our student production assistant is Sarah Byington, and our technical advisor is Braden Flint. I'm Rachel Wadham, looking forward to the worlds that are waiting next week. Thank you for exploring with us. Mm-hmm.